Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brooke and this is Eyes Only. There is a strange thing that happens as you get closer to the moon. Its surface can appear like an optical illusion. If you are one of the few men who have descended to its surface, the experience is surreal. 10 miles away looks like 500 feet. NASA moon landers were equipped with special guidance systems to help their pilots safely make the trip. In 1971, that illusion was being witnessed by Edgar Mitchell and Alan Shepard, two Apollo astronauts in lunar orbit. They are aboard the lunar module named Antares. As they come over the target landing zone and prepare to descend, something goes wrong. The instrument panel in front of them lights up with a flashing abort signal. The computer guidance system is saying it is broken and has now been disabled. Both men sit there staring at the flashing light. A voice comes over their headset. It is a technician from Mission Control in Houston. He asks the men if they could try tapping the instrument panel. Mitchell taps the panel. In the light, it goes off. He takes a deep breath. A sense of relief rushes over him. They could not have really gone this far just to have to abort. Their moonwalk would be the difference between the end of the Apollo program in its success. If they fail, the U.S. would most likely shudder all future Apollo missions. The infamous Apollo 13 failure that the whole world watched was just barely four months ago. Mitchell made note of the incredible amount of psychological tension he was experiencing. He wondered if other astronauts before him had felt similar tension. As they prepare to continue, the light comes back on. The voice comes through again. It's telling them to try tapping the panel a little bit more. The theory is that a piece of solder has become loose and is now floating around causing problems. Mitchell agrees. He taps the panel. And a few seconds later, another voice comes through. One slightly more agitated, asking if they had really tapped it hard enough. They had, and it had not worked. Their craft is broken. They sit there, waiting for Mission Control to tell them what their next move is. As they wait, the moon's orbit pulls them away from the landing zone. This is Apollo 14, and they are orbiting the moon in a broken spacecraft. In a few minutes, they will be pulled to the dark side of the moon, where they will lose all radio communications for two hours. Mitchell calms himself by repeating the words, Have faith as they travel out of range and communications go silent. Back on Earth, a man named Don Isles receives a phone call at 2 a.m. He is awake because everything he has worked for has led up to this moment. He designed the system that had just failed. NASA needed him to figure out a workaround to end the abort protocol. The 27-year-old computer scientist is already in the instrument laboratory at MIT. He had been watching the coverage of the Apollo 14 mission on TV. It is now up to him to ensure that the rest of the world doesn't need to know things have gone wrong. They have two hours before the astronauts would be back in line for a second landing attempt. Isles creates a 62-keystroke code that will fix the computer, But there is a downside. 
Overriding the abort system means that there will be no warning to abort if anything goes catastrophically wrong. After two painstaking hours, Mitchell and Shepard are back into communication with NASA. Mitchell copies down the code on a sheet of paper. They will need to enter the sequence at the right times while they are landing for things to work. They would have to land without the guidance system, something that no one had ever done before. If this isn't enough, NASA alerts them to another problem. They are running out of fuel. The calculations show that even with a flawless landing, they will only have seconds to spare before running out of fuel. Taking the risk, both men prepare to land. As they begin the procedure for touchdown, the instrument panel lights up again with another warning. The landing radar is malfunctioning. The radar system allows the craft to gauge the proximity to the ground. The moon's surface is jagged and full of crevices. There's no way to visually assess the situation on descent because both men will be facing upward. Without this system, there is no way to have a safe landing. The most significant thing this radar does is ensure that they will land on flat ground. If the lunar module lands on an incline, it could tip over. It would take more than the two of them to turn it right side again. They would be trapped there until they ran out of oxygen and died. Both men look at each other. They know it's over. NASA has strict protocol about landing without radar. Mitchell, in frustration, shouts at the instrument panel. He yells at it to lock on. And it does. Just like that. Shepard looks at their location. It has locked on at the exact right spot. Right on the money, Mitchell radios to Houston. The welcoming words, you are good for landing, come through the line. Shoot for the moon, Shepard says, and they begin to drop. Apollo astronauts are known for staying cool under immense pressure. Take a listen to the final seconds of their landing. There is something about it that is worth noting. The composure and professionalism of these men is remarkable, especially knowing what they just went through and the uncertainty of what they are doing. 60 seconds. Very good. Okay, 50 feet down. 50 feet. In good shape, too. 3 feet per second. 40 feet. 3 feet per second. 30. 3 feet per second. Looking great. 20 feet. 10. It was not easy, yet they made it with just enough fuel to get them back to the command module to take them home. The lander is tilted to the side more than anyone is comfortable with, yet it's stable. The plan is that they will spend two days on the surface. This mission is the first scientific one. I know that sounds strange, but the missions before this were more focused on developing methods of space travel and proving they could do it. This mission's purpose is to learn about the moon's volcanic history and hopefully even its origins. Their main objective is for them to make a trek to a crater called Cone Crater. 
The moon is a less volatile environment than Earth, one that would not destroy the remnants of its history, even after millions of years. NASA wants to study that preserved record. They would need to locate the crater and collect rock samples from it. Yet first, before any of that, the most anticipated part, stepping foot out onto an extraterrestrial landscape. After four hours of preparations, both men are ready. Making their way down the ladder, they step foot on the surface. A camera mounted on the side of the lander catches the moment and sends the footage back, live to Earth. Mitchell looks up as he stands there. The sky is inky black, not a star in sight. From their location, Earth is not visible. It is a sight that Mitchell gets lost in. He stands there staring up at it for a long time. There are moments in your life that you just never forget and this is one of them for him. It's easy to get lost in the wonder of it all, yet they're there to work. And their first moonwalk is spent setting up TV equipment and a radioisotope thermal generator that will power the equipment for years to come. An American flag is erected, as is tradition, and a large amount of samples are collected on that first day. The limited amount of exploration that Apollo astronauts are able to do is very frustrating. They go all that way, and all they want to do is explore every inch and crevice and climb every mountain. The time that astronauts are given is very limited and very controlled. For good reason, the last thing you want is to run out of oxygen. They were able to take a two-hour walk and explore the surface before they had to return to the module to rest for the next day's mission, where they would search for Cone Crater. It is a strange experience waking up on the moon. It would not be until Apollo 15 that anyone knew what that experience felt like. No one had really fallen asleep on the earlier missions. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong on that first Apollo mission had a restless and awful experience. Weight had been an issue, and they weren't allowed to bring anything to sit on or lay down in. Apollo 14 devised a hammock system to remedy that problem. It really didn't prove that helpful, sadly, in the long run. Mitchell and Shepard spent an anxious night being either too hot or too cold. They had stayed in their suits, which proved to be a very uncomfortable experience. With their visor up, it was too hot, and with it down, the suit's cooling system would activate, which in turn would make them too cold. Another aspect that proved to be a problem was that they had tracked a lot of moon dust in with them. It was now sealed in the module with them, Moon dust in a low-gravity situation has a tendency to be extremely annoying. It got everywhere and was constantly getting in their face. When NASA called in that wake-up call, both men were already awake, and they were anxious to get on with the mission. Rest would have been helpful, though, because where they are going is not going to be an easy trip. The highest elevation on the moon is 18,000 feet. That is more than half the size of Mount Everest. Unlike Earth's mountain ranges, which are formed through volcanic activity and tectonic plate movement, the moons are created rather quickly when asteroids crash into its surface. The extreme heat from such impacts causes the moon's crust to melt. It eventually hardens in magnificent peaks 
In the process, shards of glass get created and scattered all over the surface of the moon. It's a remarkable sight to see, yet a harsh terrain to traverse. Missions after Apollo 14 would bring with them a motorized vehicle to carry astronauts across the surface. Mitchell and Shepard, though, were not given this luxury. They set out with a map and a two-wheeled cart they had to pull behind them. They described it like dragging a tractor through a field. They would each take turns pulling it as they made the trek. The surface is steep, jagged, and full of car-sized boulders. Both men become exhausted quickly. Mitchell tells Houston that the bubble of his spacesuit is distorting his vision. It is throwing off his perception and making it hard for him to read the map they are following. That optical illusion proved a problem again. Everything looks closer than it is. Shepard and Mitchell begin to argue over the map. The flight surgeon back on Earth watches as their life support systems register increased heart rates that continue to climb. Shepard complains about how there's not a level spot to be found anywhere. He barely gets the words out before he trips and falls. He is okay, but they are losing time. Both men sit down on the edge of a giant crater. They are out of breath and tired. NASA Control is monitoring their vitals, and they are very worried about what they are seeing. That is when everyone realizes something terrible. They have lost track of the markers to keep them on course. They are lost. As they sit there trying to read the map, they realize the information they have been given is not accurate. NASA has them in the wrong place. They rest a little while longer, and then decide to get up and keep going. It is unthinkable for them to not make it to Cone Crater. Mitchell thinks for a second, he has figured out their location. This is what he's good at, he is very skilled when it comes to reading maps. The problem as he describes it, is that distance has become plastic. Their estimates are in error by 100%. They push on though, as the terrain continues to grow steeper. The flight surgeon finally orders the men to stop and rest. Mitchell tells Command that their positions are in complete doubt now. The tone starts to get heated. Shepard suggests to Houston that perhaps they could think with the two men if they wanted. A not so veiled attempt at telling them that they feel alone out there. The frustration has reached a boiling point. Shepard had been the first man in space. He was a pioneer, and now he was on the surface of the moon. A career pinnacle. For him to not complete the mission was unacceptable. Yet even he cannot stop the orders they are about to receive. Return to Antares. The mission is over. They had run out of time. Timing is everything on these missions. The command module was in orbit around the moon, and they had to get back in time to line up with it. Turning around, they did their best to find their way back. It took some time, but the going was easier. They were going downhill. Eventually, they could see the Antares in the distance. Upon returning, Shepard retrieved something from the Antares that he had brought with him. The head of a golf club. He was determined to be the first man to golf in space. Fastening it to the end of a tool, he hit three golf balls into the dark void. One of them went for miles and miles. It flew so far it ended up in lower lunar orbit. He would catch criticism for doing this. People thought it was a waste of time and it was chauvinistic. 
Either way, it might have been the only part of Apollo 14's mission you've ever heard of. They would board the Antares, and with the turn of a key, they blasted off that lonely rock and connected with the module passing above. Apollo 14 would prove remarkable for many reasons. Even though they had not reached Cone Crater, they collected a huge amount of samples and took hundreds of measurements. 94 pounds of lunar rocks were brought back to Earth. Mitchell and Shepard had come within 30 meters of reaching Cone Crater during their trip. It was a tough pill to swallow. Yet no one previous had spent as long on the lunar surface as both of them did. They had set multiple records. Many criticisms have been made about their failure to reach their objective, along with other aspects of the mission. Future programs would involve a motorized vehicle called the Lunar Rover, appropriately nicknamed the Moon Buggy. It allowed future astronauts to travel much greater distances, something that Apollo 14 would have greatly benefited from. People who defend the work done by Mitchell and Shepard point out the enormous obstacles they had to overcome to make the mission even happen. One particular aspect is worth noting. Lesser men would have never attempted the landing these men did. They had to take enormous risks, and what is remarkable is that Mitchell's landing proved to be the most accurate to date. Without the guidance system, they had landed it just 86 feet off of the target zone. It's an impressive feat, and one that he would get a lot of credit for. There is a quote from an Apollo 11 astronaut by the name of Michael Collins. He describes what it's like to be a pilot in space, and what he says might kind of explain how Mitchell was able to do what he did. He summed things up in a good way. He said, Trust your instruments, not your body. The modern pilot is always told. But this beast is best felt. Shake, rattle, and roll. This is the end of the story, but there is something else. A secret one of the astronauts tried to keep. On the way to and from the moon, Edgar Mitchell conducted secret ESP experiments. He hoped to conduct a long-distance, mind-to-mind telepathy experiment with someone on Earth. Two friends of his that were physicians sat with a psychic by the name of Olaf Johnson. They would be there as witnesses to prove whether or not the psychic really did receive any messages. Alone in bed during the trip, Mitchell would pull out of his bag five Zener cards. Each one had a different symbol on them. He shuffled the deck and at random chose a card. He would stare at the symbol and concentrate hard for 15 seconds, writing down the symbol and what time he had tried to send it to Olaf on a piece of paper. He would do this 25 times, each with a new card. It didn't work. The media would catch wind of the experiments when they returned to Earth. It proved to be an embarrassing situation, not only for Mitchell, but for NASA as well. Mitchell's fascination with ESP didn't end there, though. It only grew. He would leave NASA and eventually form the Institute for Noetic Sciences, where he would pursue the study of parapsychology. If you have listened to my first episode titled Operation Stargate, you might remember how the CIA funded psychic research in the 70s. Well, the CIA used Mitchell's Institute as a cover to hide their involvement in the funding of that research. It's a small world, and Mitchell had made big waves in it. 
He would become the public face of government-funded ESP research. The research that would eventually lead to the fully operational Stargate program. Thanks for listening.